We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Arsenal go away to Sutton and come away with a two-goal lead, leaving fans wondering, can we play you every week? Literally? Can we? Please? This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I think it's fair to say we found our level at the weekend, and that level was good enough to beat a team that was 472 steps down the rung of uh, English football. For us, I think that was our level. It was six goals better than the result we managed uh, in midweek, so I think we can all say it was a rousing success uh here to discuss it with me is clive you can find him on twitter at clive pfc hello clive hello hello looking forward to this uh, is, it, is this a time to admit that i was actually nervous before the game uh, i mean there's really no reason to be because if we found anything about arsenal it's that the routine games usually wind up being routine victories so no need for uh, alarm or panic now i do have uh unfortunate news for you we are going to try something new we are going to invite a journalist onto the podcast. Uh, I know there are a lot of people that will not appreciate that because there are a lot of people that don't have a very high regard for journalism, but uh, joining us from The Guardian is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Uh, Tim, it is a pleasure to have you on this humble podcast. Uh, uh, my pleasure. <laughs> and, and let me be the first to congratulate you if that's something you congratulate someone on uh, on writing for The Guardian. I thought it was an excellent article. We will dive into that at some point, but certainly uh, congratulations cool. are in order. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. Uh, Let's do this. Let's start because it is so unusual. Uh, I think one of the most popular sections of this podcast has been when we've done Tim's travelogues. Uh, So we'll give you a quick crack at it, Tim. Um, You know, I think for the people that watched on streams or on TV, this match was kind of a ho-hum affair. But from what I've seen on Twitter, the people that had a chance to go and you were among them 
found it to be one of the more mm. enjoyable experiences in many years. So maybe you can talk us through a little bit what it was like to go to this uh, very unique occasion. Yeah, indeed. And, and it, was, it was very, very popular too, and not just because of the scarcity of tickets. Um, there were only 700, and uh, you know, I was very lucky I came out on the ballot in the end. But, I mean, there was so much interest in this because it's just... I mean, I, I can't think of a, a comparable game, really. I can't think of a time when Arsenal have gone away to a non-league side. And, you know, Sutton are absolutely a non-league side. I don't think they've ever been in the Football League and they're fairly low down in the conference. So, um, you know, I, I, I can't remember. I've, you know, I've been with Arsenal to many a League Two and League One ground um, you know, Arsenal ladies play at Boreham Wood, who are in the, the same division as Sutton. I go and watch my local team sometimes, Bromley, who are about five places above Sutton in the league. So, I mean, personally, um, and also I always used to go to the under-21 friendlies. I've actually been to Sutton before to watch Arsenal's under-21s play a friendly there, which was quite different. But obviously that's very, very different because none of these fixtures are sold out um, and none of them have the buzz quite random like this one does uh, or did rather and it's just um, a bit of a once in a lifetime really I, I, I just I, I literally can't think of any Arsenal fixture in the last 40 or 50 years that's been like this that in the FA Cup fifth round you go away to a non-league side whose stadium only holds 5,000 um, because what used to happen I mean we drew Farnborough Town a few years ago but they changed that to, to Highbury we, we initially drew them away um, but you're not allowed to do that anymore, so you have to play at these grounds. And and it was it was the most fun I've had at an Arsenal away game in in years. Really, the atmosphere was so much more jovial, uh, largely because you know it's so different. It was a bit of a novelty, perhaps. You know, it, we were tourists almost. Um, people were so thankful to get a ticket. Um, you're much closer to the pitch. You're much closer together, which creates a real camaraderie. There was lots of, um, sorry to use the word banter, but there was lots of kind of banter going on with the Sutton goalkeeper in the second half because you're so close. Um, you know, when David Espina tried to give Sutton a goal by passing to one of their centre forwards in the first half and uh, the ball goes behind the goal and pretty much every Arsenal fan is within about 15 yards of him. <laughs> So, you know, he gets a bit of an earful and it, it's just a, a completely different experience. And obviously it must have been the same for Sutton fans as well to see their ground, um, you know, filled like that and see and, and hear all of this buzz around it. So um, it was incredibly unique. It was it was a really, really good night. There was, you know, the, the kind of moaning and groaning didn't happen quite as much, maybe because we were pretty much always comfortable in the game as well. I'm sure had it still been nil-nil with half an hour to go, a lot of that would have surfaced. But um, yeah, and I mean, from that point, of view, it's the worst view I've probably ever had at an Arsenal game, um, you know, because there's no real, t there's just a couple of steps. So, you know, I'm only five foot nine. So unless you're like six foot three, you can't really see much. Um, and I didn't really see either goal that well, but mm. um you know, it was it was massively enjoyable, and and the game itself um, brought me absolutely no surprises, um, to be honest. But yeah, it was it it was it was really fantastic. It was just um, a change of pace, which I think, given the tetchiness amongst the away support recently, was really welcome.
Yeah, that sounds about right. Just a last uh, question there, because it is obviously a very different experience watching this on on TV as I did, where uh, it just honestly wasn't particularly enjoyable, uh, and I was thankful for the Mm -hmm. final whistle. But at the final whistle, uh, there was the expected pitch invasion and carrying on. Um, From your perspective, was that all in good fun, and the, the players took it that way, or did it get a little touchy and concerning at any point? How was that? I, I, the bit I saw was kind of in, in good faith and good fun. And honestly, I had about 10 friends in the home end and uh, some of them might have spilled onto the pitch as well. Um, the, the, the comedy moment was Alexis though, because one guy got to him, you know, I think a kid got to him to take a selfie and he looked quite willing, um, to do it. And then he kind of looked up and saw about 400 other people running towards him and he absolutely bolted. It was so funny. He 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 sprinted to the dressing room, hurdled like the advertising hoardings, and just got the hell out of there. Oh, that's great. Um, I I heard that it it got a bit funny after that. But to be honest, I was already on my way out um, when when I think that happened. Like there were there were some pyros being let off and stuff, and then one of them was kind of thrown fairly near us. But I mean, you know, it it wasn't like. A weapon or anything it was just a little smoke bomb right um but to be honest we started moving because of that because we thought well just in case this starts to get a little bit touchy let's just get out of here and it's it's relatively easy to get out so yeah we did all in all sounds like a good experience yeah very much so well i'm glad uh hopefully it was uh, uh as enjoyable an experience for the players who i think you know probably don't get to experience much like that uh in their usual life and i think that it's definitely a quite the um, juxtaposition from going to the Allianz to going to Sutton and maybe the come down that the players deserved after their performance in Bayern and you know, a little bit of humbling can't hurt. So, Clive, uh, from your perspective, in terms of the game itself, we're not going to spend a tremendous amount of time on it, but there are certain takeaways. I think my biggest takeaway and the one that's sort of floating around social media was just another impressive performance by Lucas and and maybe that he is potentially nearing more opportunities with the first team. But were there other takeaways you had from this, I guess you would say, uneven but ultimately effective performance? Yeah, it's, it's two or three takeaways I had. And um, one was obviously to see what we did on the pitch, you know, to see how the ball moved, see if you know we, we prepared properly for that. I think it was interesting watching us get to grips with that surface. The ball just tend to run out a lot, so your technical passing has to be perfect. Otherwise, you look stupid. And there were some players, dare I mention, particularly Wobie at the start of the game, and maybe Monreal, that struggled with connecting with each other. So that was quite interesting, worrying until we scored, and then laughable afterwards. Um, and obviously, I was looking at, to see how where the gap came. I'm interested to see what Tim thought, but, you know, to see who really imposed themselves, you know, physically and speed-wise, intensity-wise upon, you know, part-time players in in, in, in most cases. So, um, and there's two players that I was really looking forward to seeing, you know, and, and one was Lucas, and I think he went out with the attitude that I'm here to play, I'm a premiership player, and this is what it's like to be a premiership player, and I may lose the ball, but I'm going to chase you down and take it back off you. I'm going to run you. I'm going to. I'm going to take you on. I'm going to tackle you. And I thought his attitude was fantastic. He was the only one the for other... me whose intensity was visibly at the level that you expect to see it from at at the Premier League level. I mean, he was the one who seemed to have that attitude. I'm here to humiliate 
uh, and show up yeah. these non-league players and show them what professional uh, athleticism and intensity is all about. The rest, and I can see how it would be hard in that environment to raise your intensity beyond sort of the preseason level, but the rest did have a little bit of a preseason veneer about it. It did a little bit. And, you know, to, to take one of Wenger's phrases away, he's looking to buy what they call not the red carpet type players, right? And I, and I include Perez in, in that group, maybe maybe Gabriel in that type group. But the other one is really Rob Holding, who's who's come up for the lower leagues. And he's, in my opinion, he turned up with, okay, this doesn't bother me. I'm going to play. You know, he's obviously, he, he's, you know, he's English, so he come with that sort of attitude. And I thought he did really well. I thought he didn't master the ball on one occasion. The pitch sort of mastered him and it got stolen on him. But apart from that, I thought he looked to be assertive. I, I, I'm really starting to look at him and think, well, you know, could you be the answer next to Koscielny? Because maybe we need that calm or more composed athlete rather than a tear away, scare him, you know, far in player in Mustafi. But that's maybe for a later date, that discussion. But... I was impressed with those two players and, and, and seeing their assertiveness to impose themselves on um, on part-time footballers. And that was my takeaway, really. Yeah. I, you know, there were so many things, little things from this game that you could dive into. It's hard for me to know, given the, the pitch they played on and the environment maybe sapping some of the intensity out of it. I also think it's easy to be critical of Arsenal in this game, but... You've got a Sutton team that's going to be at 120% adrenaline level and an Arsenal team that's probably going to be, you know, struggling to find the intensity they need after going from Bayern to this. And the end result can be a game that, that's just a little closer than it should be. I, I think there were also some challenges being put in by Sutton that would have had Arsenal players shying away from the 50-50s. Uh, the referees certainly encouraged that. And we could make a big talking point about how the referees should have been more... Uh, democratic or egalitarian in the way he punished some of those fouls, but I, I just don't think it's worth getting into in a big way. You know, some of the players that I thought maybe didn't do themselves justice, uh, Jeffrey and Adelaide had a chance to impress um, and maybe start to make an argument for being considered more often. I don't think he accomplished that on the night. Um, I also think Awobi, whose form has been sliding worryingly, continued to have an uneven performance. Uh, it was a century of goals for Theo Walcott, though. Um, Tim, is that... Sort of one of the one of the big moments of the match, or something that ultimately is just an individual statistic that's an irrelevance. Um, so I'd lean slightly towards the latter, to be honest. I am. Um, I think that anyone that was expecting Arsenal to win this game five or six nil was always going to be disappointed. And I had a conversation with a friend at half time, saying, oh, "I can't believe it's only one nil." And I'd spoken to him earlier in the in the day and, and made my, my prediction was three nil. Arsenal and that two of the goals would be in the second half and uh, he was saying oh, I thought it'd be seven or eight and I said look I know there aren't many of them it's a fairly small sample size but have a look at all of the results when um, Premier League teams go to non-league or League Two sides away from home it never works out like that at home I would expect us to beat Sutton four five nil at least away it never works out like that for some of the reasons that you you alluded to that they're going to be full of adrenaline and, you know, frankly, it's it's easier if you're full of adrenaline and you're playing without the ball, that shows up a lot more. You know, um, for Arsenal, the intensity then has to come on the ball. It's easier to look intense and be intense when you're crashing into tackles, when you're, you know, you're running around and you're marking players. But when you've got the football and you're trying to pass it round, um, obviously, it's a bit more difficult to create that intensity. And also... I think one of the things 
that people don't really appreciate is the gap between the players is not as big as we think it is in a lot of cases. I mean, Craig Eastman played, started a Premier League game for Arsenal um, in January 2010 um, and was in our first team. That means he's got Premier League ability. He hasn't got <laughs> does, Premier does it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm he, kidding. What, I'm he, kidding. what he hasn't got is Premier League mentality. Right. Yeah. You know, Rory, Rory Deacon came through our youth he team. He's not going to be. In, he's not going to be in non-league for long. He's gone down to work his way back up, and he'll probably end up in league, making a fairly decent career in League One or something like that. Don't get me wrong. A lot of these players, yeah, some of them are jobbers and they'll go around non-league. Some of them might even drop down a bit. But actually, a lot of these players have been in Premier League academies, Championship academies. Um, a lot of them are very good players, but what they don't have is that consistency, that rhythm over a period of 10, 20, 30 games. But actually, you put them in a one-off game and a one in a one-off game that they're bang up for, that kind of gap narrows um, a little bit. But their problem is that they can't produce this performance every week. If Sutton produced that intensity every week, they would not be 18th in the conference. But most of those players have the ability to play better than they do um, consistently. So, you know, these games, they usually go like this. I think that the, the most recent comparable match I can think of is Man United went to Burton Albion about 10 or 11 years ago. And Burton Albion were in the conference at the time. And, um, and they, they held them nil-nil. Um, so and, and you know Lincoln went and deservedly beat Burnley at Turf Moor as well. So I'd, and I, and they're fit guys as well at Sutton. They you know I know they they don't have the facilities that Arsenal except do for the backup the keeper. But yes, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, clearly. Um, but I mean they still train every day. They're still they're still fit enough to run around for ninety minutes basically. Whether they're fit enough to run around like that for 90 minutes for, you know, a whole season, probably not, because the whole point of strength and conditioning coaches and things like that is marginal gains over a long period of time. But all of this in a one-off game, it, it makes it more difficult, I think, than people realise. And yeah. I, I fully expected the game to go like this. I thought it would take 20, 25 minutes to break the deadlock and then perhaps in the second half towards the end, we might open open them up a bit. The only thing that did surprise me is once we got the second goal, I expected Sutton's heads to drop, and they didn't at all. In fact, they um, they looked like they they, they, came they found again, another they? gear. Yeah, yeah, and I fully expected. We said when the second goal went in, we thought right, um, you know, we could have a hatful, but we'll probably play this out and get another one, and that will be fine. But Sutton really kicked up another gear. So, but I think that was the only thing in the pattern of the game that honestly surprised me. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, I think on a small pitch and a surface that the Arsenal players aren't going to be familiar with, and like I said, their level may be being a little lower on the intensity scale and a Sutton team that's very, very pumped up, um, it's going to be harder to exploit them and find space and let your technical ability and, and even more so your physical attributes dominate. So I, I, I get that. Um it's something you said, I, I can't help it because I'm an insufferable cunt, but like, you know, where you said for one day and one game, you know, being pumped up and really fired up and, and focused, they can narrow that gap. Um, if only we could do that at Bayern Munich. But Well, indeed. <laughs> you know, so, so be it. So, look, I mean, it, it is a match that leaves us another uh, uh, non-league team waiting for us at the Emirates. I mean, Clive, it, 
it's hard not to start dreaming of Arsene Wenger going out with another FA Cup. Um, and, and it does sort of open up for us now because all we have to do is beat Lincoln at home and, and we're off to Wembley. And it just makes me wonder, as you start to see a path to a, a possible additional FA Cup trophy for, for the manager, it leads us around to a good chance to discuss his future. And I think given that we have a little break before our next match and that the, the Sutton game isn't one that needs an hour's worth of analysis, let's dive into the manager a little bit. Tim wrote about him uh, possibly leaving at the summer, and, and I'll let Tim sort of weigh in and, and uh, sort of cover what he said in his Guardian article. But I'm curious to get your thoughts right now. First and foremost, do you think the manager is going to go at the end of the season? If, if you asked me a week ago, I would have said yes. A week or so later, I'm, I'm very 50-50. I, I, think, um, I think I read an article from Amy Lawrence. On, I, haven't, I haven't read Tim's article yet. So, And, oh, and there's one on. bit that's... I know. <laughs> I think I may have done. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I read all his stuff. I haven't read this one yet. So I said, but basically, she said one thing, and it was all about Arsene waking up and not and not having a job in football. And that sort of struck me. And I, I just don't think that he can see a day where he's not a manager in his own head. And um, while he's got control of that decision, which he seems to have right now, I'm just not sure he's going to see a way out for himself. I think he'll push the club and I think he may end up he may end up staying. If you ask me my personal opinion, I think we're ready for something different. We're ready structurally for something different within the club. I think we're ready for a different type of hierarchy, different type of football structure. Would you want to I see him would... move upstairs into a director of football role? I I happen to think that moment has passed. Um, I think it was there two years ago, maybe after Hull, um, two, three years ago. But I think that moment has passed. I, I think, you know, in my opinion, I'd like to see the club do something fresh and new. Um, because I think Venka wants to be a... You know, smell the grass on training day manager. I don't think he wants to be an executive uh, alone. I think he is an executive, but he also coaches and, and trains a team, right? So he wants to do the lot. So um, I think, you know, I see him wanting to be that everyday manager and really have, you know, impacted the club's culture in that way. Right. But for, for Arsenal, I feel we really do yearn for something new. Or maybe that's just my personal view from seeing us go around this sort of... Um, well, let me cycle. ask you this. Do, do you think that the decision is made already um, in his mind and in the mind of the board and that it's been communicated and they're waiting for the time to announce it one way or the other? Or do you genuinely believe that he's going to take till the end of the season, see how it plays out, and if we come uh, you know, fourth or, or finish in the top four and win an FA Cup, that he'll use that to make his decision? I tell you what. After after the games, recent games, I thought the way that Wenger was sort of bossed in the press conferences, the way they were cut short, the press conference, you know, before the starting game and after the Bayern game, it was almost as if he was being managed. You know, maybe that was me looking between the lines, mm -hmm. but he was being managed. He was being shut down. You know, and uh, and I thought that was quite interesting. I'm really looking to see if the board has got any minerals about them. I, I really am to see who's in charge. Because right now, I don't know who Wenger reports to. I don't know who he's accountable to. It's not clear. It's not transparent to me. I'm really, I don't think any of us really know. I don't think we can put, it's difficult to put your own hopes, your own thought processes to one side and put yourselves in the board's 
shoes because they're all faceless characters to me with ambitions which who are not clear, with goals who are not clear, ambitions are not stated. We don't know what they really, really want. We assume they want top four. We assume they want financial sustainability. We think that's the way forward, but we don't really know. We just we just add things up. So I, I'm looking for, you know, what I, what I yearn for is a clear, transparent hierarchy, top-down, clear common goals, a structure that's not one man, single point of failure, one man dependent. So if we do lose a major, then the whole thing doesn't stop. Right. Something far more sustainable, far more, has a much more continuity about it, easy succession planning. That's what I want to see, whatever happens going forward. And good luck with that. <laughs> and by the way, dear listener, I am proud to say that I have seen more than one Guy Ritchie movie, so I know what minerals are. So that didn't throw me at all. Uh, bollocks, hey, good even. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Tim, uh, let me start with this. Do you think the decision has been made or that it will be made based on what happens between now and the end of the season? I don't think it's been made, no, because if he was absolutely forced to make a decision now, I think he'd go. But, um, you know, make no mistake, he doesn't want to go. Um, you know, he'll hang in for all he's worth. But, I mean, what did he do with his last contract? He waited till after the cup final. What does that tell you? If we'd have lost the cup final, he'd have gone. Well, um, so let me ask you then, what what do you think would be the bar that we'd have to get over for him to feel that he could and would stay? I actually think there might be quite a bit. Um, I think what are the big concerns, how we perform in big away games, that puts a lot on Anfield and White Hart Lane for me. Yeah. I think the results in those two games will have a very big bearing. If it's um, all a bit Groundhog Day, I think he'll definitely go. Um, I think if he comes out of those two games pretty well, um, you know, we finish fairly securely in the top four, third or second um, and win the FA Cup, he'll definitely stay, I think. Um, I'm just not convinced those things are going to happen. And if and when they don't, if he couldn't, you know, he so clearly on his last contract, it didn't come down to whether he thought he could do the job or not. It came down to, well, if I don't win this FA Cup, it's just going to be unbearable. The pressure, you know, the, the kind of sniping, it's going to be too much. And basically, since then, that's progressed even more now. So there's an even bigger tide to row back against. And that means he's got to do more to row it back. So, you know, he got fourth in the FA Cup that year. That's not going to cut it this year. Um, I don't think, and I think he knows that. I think he knows he's got to pull something out of the bag. Um, he's got to win that cup again. He's got to go to Anfield and White Hart Lane and get something. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think he dearly, dearly wants to do that. I think, you know, he would be absolutely mortified to leave. But I think he would just think, you know, I, I can't turn this. I can't turn, you know, the, the pressure around. I can't turn... The, the kind of tide of opinion round and this is just going to become a bit more of a circus um, I, I think the problem we've got at Arsenal is we've got this kind of stasis where everyone's terrified of conflicts um, you know and, and it goes not down online, to the players not on the internet well no, we got no that covered. The, the fans <laughs> the, yeah the fans do it all but in terms of the players don't have conflict with one another they don't have conflict with other teams um, you know, there was during during the Bayern match. I think Espina got flattened by a Bayern player, and I looked up and I thought, right, 
someone get around that buying player. No, you're not doing that. Okay, at least get in the referee's ear and try and convince him to send. No, you're not going to do that. Maybe go over and see how a spinner is. No, none of you are doing that. So, like, there's, there's no, like, they're terrified of conflict in the team. And it's happening at the top of the club as well, because I'm sitting here thinking, what are Arsenal doing? Are Arsenal looking after Arsene Wenger's future or are they looking after Arsenal's future? And it looks to me like they're kind of treading on eggshells around Arsene Wenger because they want him to stay and, you know, they don't want to upset him. And they're taking a big gamble because, you know, if he says in April I'm going, that doesn't leave us a lot of time to sort well, stuff out. So okay. That's the problem. That's the problem we've got. Is that, you know, I, I'm I'm ready for a change, but um, I'm not sure that Arsene Wenger is really, really Arsene Wenger and the board aren't really, really allowing good conditions for a change. And also, you know, in 2014, that board should have started putting things in place, like a director of football, like more, you know, uh, more of a football presence in the club and on the board. And, you know, just said to Arsene, look, we're delighted you're staying. We've given you this contract. We've given you your pay rise and stuff. But this club has got to plan without you. And whether you fucking like it or not, you're going to work with the director of football. Because when you're gone, we need someone like that in the club. And we've got to start planning for what's best for the club. And it just feels like, you know, Arsene doesn't want that. So it doesn't happen. And, you know, Arsenal might ultimately suffer um, because of that. And I find that quite disappointing because I believe Benga when he says that he has real affection for this club. But it just feels like everything is geared towards not hurting Arsene Wenger's feelings rather than looking out for what's best for Arsenal. Yeah, and I wonder if this isn't maybe a microcosm of the problem with Arsene Wenger himself as a coach, as a manager, just a lack of decisiveness. Um, you know, in yeah. the transfer market, we've seen him vacillate and, and struggle, and when it comes to changing his lineup, he's been slow to adjust, and with substitutions and tactically, you know, he he has sort of a, an apprehension about making change. And Clive, is there maybe a part of this where we're seeing with his decision of whether to stay or go, the same lack of decisiveness and ruthlessness and, and clear... Uh, statement of of intention that has has plagued sort of the last few seasons of him as a manager in that you know you want someone with a conviction to say my time is up it's time for this club to find a new manager say to the players i won't be here next season make your plans accordingly say to the fans this is it i'm out you can give me a great sending off at every match between now and the end of the season but i'm you know, I, my time has come. It allows the club that at least some time, I mean, we're probably too late even now, but some time to go through their planning. But instead, part of him wants to stay, part of him wants to go. He realizes people aren't happy, but he still thinks he can get it done. And, and as a result, he can't come to a decision. And that inability to make a decision is hurting the club the same way we've seen it hurt the club on the pitch. I mean, to you, is that a, a fair reflection of the situation? Or have I done what I always do, which is create a scenario for myself and then backed it up with bullshit? Mm-hmm. No, I could piggyback on the back of that, and I think there's something to that. And um, the great point that Tim mentioned about conflict, but let me take this on a step further. Right? I, I do feel, you know, within the game that Arsenal, you know, had a certain arrogance about them as a club. You know, the Arsenal is good enough to be who we are, the Bank of England club. Arsene Wenger said, "Well, I, I'm the man. You know, who can be better than me?" There's a little bit of insular thinking going on at the club. You know, the club looks at the balance sheet and everything's healthy, looks at the share price, everything's healthy. 
Only three clubs have been in the Champions League for the last 20 years and we're one of them. We're always in the top four. What's there to worry about? We're Arsenal. We'll always get young players coming through. We might win some, we lose some. But while this is all going on, this sort of self-centred, insular arrogance that is okay, we're not realising that the culture in the club is changing. You know, I always believe that players are a manifestation of their environment. So players pick up on that. They pick up that, you know, first is not the only place to finish. You know, we can finish second, third or fourth just to keep our contracts and keep our lovely houses in Hampstead and Highgate, etc. So you don't have to win at Arsenal. You just need to compete. And that's good enough. And um, I think it manifests into a culture of second place. And, um, and, I, and whether you say the manager is the person that creates that environment. And uh, as a fan now, all I want to see is, is progress. All I want to see is a real competition. But also I want to see an awareness of our competitive landscape. When I look around at the teams at the top, and let's forget the, you know, the, the oil-rich teams or the, the brand-rich team and the city team who've just taken you know, big leaps that we can't, we can't compete with. You know, Manchester United are sustainable. They're a, they're, a, they're a huge brand. They're making more money now than they've ever made. They've not won the league for a few years. I'm looking around at Spurs. I'm looking around at Everton. I'm looking around at Liverpool. I'm looking around at these clubs who are not sitting still you know, West Ham, well, they're messing up at the moment, but they're not sitting still. Everton are getting new investment. And I'm looking around at our European counterparts that we were ahead of, that have clear identities, that are now catching us, uh, catching us up and surpassing us. You know, we watched Monaco last night. We watched Seville. We watched PSG. I know they're all rich, but they've, they've had a clear ambition. Dortmund, Athletic you know, Madrid. Dort Dortmund, Atletico Madrid. These, these teams are achieving a European brand, European consistency with far less money. And it brings me back to our efficiency of spend. We've created this monster. We've created this massive wage bill, which I don't think is well spent. I don't think we're buying the right profile of players, I mentioned last week. And I think we're not, we're not punching our way any longer. And that disappoints me. And I, I was thinking back to even the youth project that you know we've all watched. Even when we went for that youth project, in some ways, I, I knew who we were going to buy. I knew why we were buying them. In some ways, watching us lose to PSG, uh, uh, sorry, PSV, with 19-year-old centre mids, Denilson and Cesc Fabregas, I sort of accepted it. I sort of understood what they're trying to do. And when I watch us now, with the same mentality, with older players, with higher wage bill, I accept it less. I accept the 5-1 thrashings a lot less because we should have learned. And if other clubs had been in our situation over this many, many years, I'm sure they would have learned by now. So, yes, I do get concerned about our competitive landscape. I do think by jogging on the spot, we're not moving forward. And if we're serious, we need to think about the structures in place at our club and really move us forward before we start really going backwards because that would be you know, pretty unacceptable. Well, and that's the problem is once you do start to slide backwards, it can be quicksand. It can be very, very hard to stop the rot, and you can slide down quite quickly and find it difficult to catch up. And, you know, to Arsene Wenger's great credit, he's managed tremendous consistency, but, you know, consistency without any excellence along the way. I mean, over the last 10 years, certainly not the first 10, but the, the challenge with that is when the consistency, you know, if all you have is a consistent consistency of relatively high performance— well, when you do have a negative variance season, 
then suddenly it doesn't feel like you've accomplished anything for a long period of time. I, I'm not sure that any of the sentences I said provided any additional content here, so let's move on. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I do think is problematic, and this may not be a good time to bring up American democracy as uh, the, the paragon of, of anything positive, but... You know, it's built on the idea of checks and balances, and I think that good institutions have checks and balances in place, and there is no real check or balance on the power of Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. Um, and as a result, his ideology dominates, and when he came in, it was an ideology that did have some checks on it, I think, with David Dean, and there were other voices that had some authority to influence how the club was run, and, and that's no longer the case. And if his ideas are maybe becoming a little anachronistic and maybe no longer uh, have the ability to get the club moving forward, there's no one to adjust course unless the manager does it on his own. Tim, I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about what we need to do to sort of salvage the season and move on from here. I think there is a very worrying trend in our play overall, and it does appear over the last few weeks that the manager has been grasping at straws a little bit for formations and, and lineups to kind of get the magic back, so to speak. So I'm going to let you play fantasy manager here for a minute. Um, for you, uh, assuming mostly full fitness, forget Santi Cazorla, but the rest of the squad mostly fit, what 11 would you want to pick in the big games the rest of the season, and how would you set them up? You know, that's that's such a difficult question for, I think, a lot of the, the reasons that Clive has alluded to in that, we have a lot of, of really good players, but I, I just I don't know how they fit together yet. And well, I, for God's sakes, Tim, think... I'm, I'm giving you seven million pounds for, for a reason. you got to make the tough calls. <laughs> and so I, I don't think Arsene Wenger really has an idea of how they fit together. I mean... Well, that, that, that speaks to squad building, but, you know, we've, we've been over that. I mean, I, I think I really see a role for Danny Welbeck, um, for example... Um, and I think that, you know, where we've been playing Iwobi, wide left, who has been, you know, up and down this season for, I think, quite obvious reasons. And Chamberlain, I think we should probably stick with the idea of Chamberlain as a central midfielder till the end of the season. Um, you know, not really consider him as much of an option for the wide positions because we've got Welbeck back. We've got Lucas Perez in good form. Um, you know, unless there's injuries there, which obviously could happen, I would consider Chamberlain a central midfielder um, until the end of the season. And, and actually, I'm quite interested in the prospect of him playing in that number eight role because in a in a kind of strange way, he brings us not in the same style, but he brings us some of the things that Cazorla uh, brings us. And I actually, that. I think... Or maybe even, you know, maybe probably a, a, a better a better comparison would be Diaby um, in that he can carry the ball. Um, he can move us from A to B quite quickly. Um, and I think that's been that's been quite interesting. And I was disappointed in Munich that Chamberlain was moved back to the right, because actually, I, th I think, you know, Listen, I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been a complete disaster still because there was a lot more to the defeat in Munich. But I, I really wanted to see him in central midfield again. And it was actually Ozil I wanted to see go out wide. Um, so I, which, you know, which I, I'm quite, ironically is what he did at Chelsea for about 20 minutes. Um, and we yeah, haven't seen it since. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
I, I'm actually quite drawn to the idea of Chamberlain um, and Granite Jacker, uh, to be honest, as a, as, a, as a midfield pairing, because I think, you know, Chamberlain's got that mobility that perhaps Granite Jacker lacks and he's got that ability to carry the ball. We all know Ox is a bit rough around the edges and he's a bit liable, as we saw in the last few minutes at Munich, he's a bit liable to the odd brain fart. Um, but I'm, I'm just quite interested in giving that till the end of the season, just giving Ox a little go there um, and see if he can build some consistency and confidence. Um, and, and, you know, I like, I, I quite, I've always quite like the way he uses the ball actually in, in terms of his, um, his one touch passing. Um, but I mean, as for the rest of it, I, yes, I, w- I would have kind of Welbeck um, on the left. And as soon as he's kind of fit enough to do that, I would have him pretty much as a mainstay i definitely stick with um, Alexis um, up front. And then on the right, you know, it's between Walcott and Lucas Perez, um, really. So I think maybe for the bigger games like like Anfield, um, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, put Ozil out wide. But then there's just a part of me that thinks, is that just accommodating him? Is that just like trying to squeeze him in because he's Mesut Ozil? Um you know, do we consider the more drastic step of just leaving him out? Because, you know, I, I listened to the, the Bayern pod and I think there were some good points made um, about his kind of contribution in these games, so, some of which is his fault and some of which isn't. Um, I, you know, his agent did make a fairly decent point about Bayern that when one team has over 70% of the ball, what do you want your number 10 to do? But at the same time, there is a a bit of a tariff there and maybe playing Ozil out wide is just, you know, just trying to shoehorn him in for the sake of it. And maybe we do just go four, three, three and just pick the players that really, really suit it. Um, and I actually think Chamberlain in central midfield in a, in a proper three, like we saw against Southampton. Um, I think that looks, that looks quite interesting to be honest, but I mean, a lot of it will depend on, you know, availability. I still think the team will chop and, change around a little bit and we don't know you know what's going to happen when someone like Ramsey comes back um, we don't know who's going to you know get into some form about this time last year Iwobi really came into the picture and actually he, he kind of helped transform the team a little bit Iwobi and Welbeck so we could certainly it, use a transformational presence right now <laughs> yeah yeah I, I agree I agree and I, I don't really know where it's going to come from um maybe Chamberlain in central midfield. I don't know. I'm not sure how convinced I am of that and how much that's just clutching at straws. But to be honest, I, I just think this, you know, this squad really lacks a proper identity and it's, it's difficult um, because I just, I suppose I haven't really seen a coherent team. I, I like to Obi Walcott and Alexis at the beginning of the season. I really like that front three, but you know, Iwobi, you know, we, we spoke about it a lot. You, you can't really l- rely on Iwobi at this stage for an entire season. So I think the most sensible thing to do is bring Well back in um, and give him, you know, the end of the season um, and see where we go from there. And we've got, you know, Lucas firing a little bit and he's an interesting option. So yeah, um, a lot of it depends on how it all fits together. But, you know, being in March and really not knowing what, a strong starting eleven constitutes for us is is a bit disappointing, and it just 
feels like this is exactly what happened last season as well. Yeah. I mean, it goes without saying that I would go with five Giroud's and five Francis Cochran's, but, you know, I'm not the manager. Um, I think it is... That's, that's yeah. another reason, sorry, I'm, I'm quite keen on the idea of Chamberlain to try and move away from, from, Francis. from Francis Cochran. Poor, yeah. poor Francis. Poor, poor Francis. He's gotten the way of Olivier Giroud in my my esteem. As an absolute bona fide starting 11 player, I mean, I don't mean, you know, selling him or killing him or whatever, but do you know what I mean? Just like (laughs) this idea that Cochrane is one of the first names on the team sheet, I think that's something we probably need to move away from. I know I can be difficult, but I mean, I haven't advocated (laughs) killing any of our players, at least to my knowledge. Um, not on air. Not, not on air. Certainly not on a hot mic. Um, Clive, we'll come to you on this. But I, I do think one of the things that's just so challenging is we've had to chop and change a lot. You know, the season started off very brightly, and I don't think you can get away from. I don't think you can get away from the fact that Santi Cazorla was in the side when we started well, because we have seemed to not be able to cope with losing Santi Cazorla. But since then, we made the sort of odd choice to go back to Olivier Giroud up front. We had Shaka in there, then Shaka out of there. We've played Coughlin with El Nenny. We've played Coughlin with Ramsey. We've played Shaka with Ramsey. We've, you know, we've had to chop and change in midfield when when Ramsey was out and and, and Shaka was out and. I think we did Ox and Cochran. I, I don't know. We, we had the lineup that played against Southampton in the FA Cup. So there's been a lot of chopping and changing through the midfield and, and up front. And all along the way, we just haven't really settled on anything that works without Cazorla. So, Clive, I guess the question is, is it time to try something totally different? A, a diamond in midfield, a, you know, a, a dropping Mesodoza like Tim talked about. For you, if you had to pick the 11 and the way to set them up that's going to get us uh, to uh, overturn the deficit in the Bayern tie and win the title, what would that be? Well, you know, four diamond two, that gets our favourites in, right? So you have a, a three at the base, you have Urza at the top of the diamond, and you have two forwards. The two forwards, you know, could be Alexis and, and Welbeck or Perez. But, you know, I don't see him doing that. He's never done it before. The four three three, I do see him doing. And if you're going to Anfield, right, you've got, you got to think what the opposition going to do. Right, so, and if I'm, you know, if I'm Klopp, I'm thinking, okay, I've had a bit of a rest. I'm going to do what Everton did. I'm going to do what City did. I'm going to turn up the heat. I'm going to turn up the intensity. I'm going to, I'm going to run around. I'm going to push them off the ball. I'm going to make them run backwards. I'm going to run through their lines. And so, if I'm Wenger now, I'm thinking, so what do I need to do? I need to pick a mobile, high-touch team, and by that I mean all eleven players comfortable on the ball. And so, for me. You know, I agree. You know, I agree totally. Welbeck has got to be ready for that game. Alexis is a high-touch player. Lucas Perrot is a high-touch player. He doesn't let games go past him. When the ball comes, he he knows what to do with it. He combines with people. He works hard. I felt in the second half against Sutton, he he sort of dipped down a little bit. It was a bit harder to find first time to his feet, but in the first half, he was uh, he was outstanding. And I think there needs to be some clarity of selection. The rewards for playing well don't seem to be manifesting themselves in selection. And certain players, and it used to be Ramsey, but it's now definitely Wobi, it's very hard for them to get out of the team. you know. And I think there needs to be clarity and reward for what you do. you know. So I think what that does is, if you don't have that clarity, the manager then loses respect from the players. And there's rumours about that in the, in the dressing room. I don't know whether to believe it or not. There's certain players staying on the pitch too long when they're playing badly. 
that creates that creates favourites, right? That creates uh, a lack of um, harmony in the dressing room. But the fact we're sitting here, you know, late mid late February, and between the three of us, we haven't got a clue what our playing identity is going to be. We don't know what formation we're going to play. We don't know who the first eleven is. I, I've I've never known this before. Honestly, I've never known it as bad as this. The debate you can almost debate nearly apart from Koscielny and Alexis. You could debate every position, and maybe Bellerin. But even he's dropped off his form recently. You could debate the centre half. You could well, well, lucky the left for back. him, there actually is not a candidate that you could debate for his position. So through, yeah, through no credit of his own, there's no there's no one to debate. Exactly. Right back. Yeah. So there's maybe three spots, right? That you could debate the goalkeeper. You know, some people uh, still want to see Alexis out out left and a different centre forward. I mean, I wouldn't, but there is a it's a debate to be had. And it, it was a point that, that Tim made, which I thought was really, really good a few weeks back, about the ability, Wenger's real strength is to manage a team, not a squad. And it's always been my issue with him. His ability to really rotate and retain a team's identity. And my second issue with him is managing a series of games that are close together. Whenever we have three in a week, we always lose the middle one and maybe lose the end one. We don't manage three big games very, very well. And, and, and I think it's a real crying shame. So if we haven't got a clue, and we are every you know every week as close watchers, I don't think the players have a clue. And I just think we need to learn from recent experiences at City and Everton and pick a highly energetic, mobile, high-touch team that can press and challenge a team technically and physically. Because at the moment, we look soft and vulnerable and slow in some positions. And I'm a massive fan of Oxley Tame just to finish off in centre midfield, because what he does is he makes people react to him. When he gets the ball, people do different things because they fear what he can do to them. And the more players we have like that on the pitch, the better. When you have a front three like Alexis, Welbeck and Perez, there's a bit of fear that they might actually do something to you. Do you see what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and change how you play and, ch and change the initiative back. And I want to see an Arsenal team that does that, affects the opposition by the names on the team sheet, and that's why I would go with that group. Yeah, I, I mean, I have no problem with that. Look, I think the fact of the matter is we just watched a very bad Leicester play very badly at Sevilla and find a way to stay in the tie, losing 2-1 away, which is certainly a, a pretty decent result. I, I just think tactically we do the equivalent of lifting up our skirt when we go away to big, uh, big teams. We don't really have the players for the formation we're using. We, we totally seed control the midfield. We're not a team that is built to sit deep, but certainly when we get drawn out into the opposition half in those big games, the way they can play around us and find acres of space to get in behind is just ridiculous. I think at some point you're going to have to stop with half measures. You know, I look at the way Pep set his team up to play Monaco and win five, three in an absolutely mental game Look at the players he has out there. Kunaguero, Sterling, Sané, um, uh, Yaya Torre, uh, De Bruyne. Was De Bruyne, is De Bruyne playing in that game? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yep. right. I mean, just, David just, Silva. Ba David Silva, exactly. Like All the attacking, you know, basically like all out attack. There's a part of me that says Wenger should just go Ox, Shaka, Ramsey, Ozil, Alexis, Welbeck, or Ozil, Alexis, Lucas, and get in there, you know, get into the spaces to cause problems for the team in possession, play a more aggressive pressing game, try to outscore the opposition. And 
play to the strengths of the players that you have, and you get a little bit more uh, skill on the ball in midfield there. You can contest the midfield better that way. I don't know. I mean, there may not be a solution to make us a great team right now, the way we're playing, but there's certainly a solution to get more out of this talent than he's getting out of them. And some of the football we've played lately is just pretty dire. And that that is certainly hard to understand given the bevy of, of uh, talented attackers that he has at his disposal. So at least he's got to come up with a solution for making us more exciting to watch in the attacking half. We'll finish with this just really quickly, Tim. Give me, uh, since uh, you have a crystal ball, if you wouldn't mind looking into it, what do you expect as the outcome of our uh, Champions League, uh, Premier League, and FA Cup campaign this season? Um, Champions League, I'm going to go on a, on a massive limb and say we're going to go out. You've been known <laughs> for your negativity. You're sticking with the brand. I like it. Okay, what about the other two? Um, I, I think that buying second leg might just be a 1-1 draw or something completely unremarkable like that. Um, in the league... I've said third or fourth all season. I'm going to stick with it. I do think we'll finish in the top four. Um, obviously not a foregone conclusion, but I think basically Tottenham are going to knacker themselves out because they've decided to go for the Europa League and the FA Cup. And they discovered in the last round of the FA Cup against Wickham that they don't have a squad. They have like 14 players. And I think Pochettino might be making a bit of a mistake by going for those other two tournaments at the same time. Um, Liverpool, I just think, are a little bit too flawed. So I think those are the two that are going to finish outside. And I think United will probably get fourth and will finish third. Um, But obviously some distance behind Chelsea. I think there's every chance we lose at Anfield and maybe draw at White Hart Lane. FA Cup it's going to be really difficult to win when you look at, you know, albeit we really should get to the semi-final, but then, you know, unless something weird happens, you're looking at a four of us, Spurs, one of Chelsea and Man U and Man City. So that's like five of the top six clubs. Fortunately, we um, have a great record against the big sides over the last few years, so (laughs) I'd, I'd back us. Well, yeah, indeed. So the the FA Cup, albeit, you know, it's opened up for us to go to the semi-final. After that, it becomes, it potentially becomes very, very difficult should we get past Lincoln, of course. Could we possibly uh, wish into an existence the nightmare of losing at White Hart Lane followed by losing to Spurs at Wembley within like a 10-day <laughs> period or something like that? Um, it, it Well, obviously it's possible, but um, hopefully that won't happen because... Then we'd have to you know, kill ourselves? No, well, exactly. And one of those um, seven new planets that NASA have discovered tonight start to look even more appealing than they already do. I was already booking a flight, but OK. So uh, um, so where do you, so you see it I, ending in the semifinals or maybe a glorious failure in the final? Yeah, maybe one of the two, maybe. And, I, I, you know, obviously that's always really sad. No one ever wants to lose a final. But I mean, if that happened, that would almost certainly be the last thing that happens in the Arsene Wenger reign. And that would make it especially upsetting um i think because i still feel sentimental towards towards the man well i think i'm not you know what i was gonna say something flip but i do too and i i would love to see him going out on whatever high is left for him to go out on uh all right clive crystal ball what's it telling you well i'm not so confident on the top four because the reason why i I just can't man man after my own heart 
I just can't remember the last big performance. I just can't remember it. You know, I can't remember. You know, apart from Southampton, the reserve team, that was a good performance. But I just can't remember the last big telling performance apart from, you know, obviously Chelsea and some of the European games away. And we really need Anfield for me to really do something that we don't normally do. We, you know, we win at White Hart Lane. You know, we have won in there in the past. We've won recently, but we've, we've seen it before. Um, Spurs are hitting a wall already. They've lost at one of their full-backs. Potentially, they are, they are, they're already you know, losing players quite quickly. If they beat Ghent this week, I think that's going to be an issue for them going forward, as Tim alluded to. Uh, Liverpool, I don't trust. Even City, I don't trust. But Arsenal, I don't trust. And I think it's really important that we do have a big performance. I think once we have that big performance, suddenly the limits of the team are, are taken off. I, I think... I can't stress the importance of Anfield. I think it's massive. I really do. I think it's a massive, massive, massive game. And if it goes well, it could open up a lot of possibilities if he finds a balance of team. So I think we could end up maybe fourth or just outside. Uh, and fair enough, Fenger's had a, not a lot of luck in the Champions League and, and even the, the League Cup. But he has a lot of luck in the FA Cup. The FA Cup has been really good to him. And I, and I can see us doing well in that competition. I just think we're... We're good at it. I think we, we manage it mentally really well. You know, went to Old Trafford a couple of years ago and did well there. And I just feel whatever the FA Cup throws at us, I think we're I think we can do it. So um I, I'm hopeful that we'll win the FA Cup but top four. We might just miss out this year. Yeah, um I mean I could see it. Look, let's put it this way. I think we will probably uh lose in the semifinal of the Champions League. Um no, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I don't. I I don't think we're getting past Bayern. It's just a feeling. Um, I think we will lose in the semifinal of the FA Cup, and I think we'll finish fifth. And the reason for that is really this: let's say we're six points clear in third or fourth place, feeling pretty good come late April. These are our last four fixtures: at Spurs, home to United, at Stoke, home to Everton. It could get really tight and really nervy. Now, look, we've been good against Everton overall at home. Uh, I realize that. And and at Stoke maybe isn't as hard as it once was. Um, certainly United at home could be fine because who knows what they'll be playing for at that time or they, they might even have a Europa League final on the horizon. Who knows? But that's a tough four fixtures to finish with. And there's no gap of safety. Let's say we're nine points clear of fifth place going into that run. There's no gap where I'd feel like, okay, top four is in the bag. So it's going to be a nervy, nervy uh, very end of April and and first three weeks of May. Yeah, go ahead. And sorry, you know what else we've got in April as well, the fixtures to always look out for. We've got Middlesbrough away and Crystal Palace away, who are probably going to be in the relegation battle. And April is the last time you want to go away to a team fighting for their life. Look at the only time we haven't thrashed Sunderland away in living memory when we played them in April last year and they got a nil-nil. So those games as well are, are potentially That's very a good tricky. Point. Yeah, look, we also have to host City in, in April and I don't know where our Leicester and uh, Southampton rearranged fixtures will wind up. Um, probably in March, I'm guessing. Um, have, has that been announced, Tim? Do you know? No, no. They'll probably they'll wait till we go out the Champions League because that frees up some dates so a week from now or whatever it is um yeah all right well in in any event what it means is that 
he's got to use the the few games we have in March as as a chance to figure out how to get the team right because April and May are going to be absolutely punishing, and that is. You know, if there's one thing that would be really, really unfortunate, it would be for Arsene Wenger to leave having not left us in the Champions League after 21 years or whatever it is of leaving us there. Um, His one big legacy, this this legacy of consistently being in the Champions League, it'd be sad to see him leave finally having lost that. Um, Although maybe that would sort of be fitting. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I think that's good enough. We've got Anfield next. Uh, There's quite a gap until that point. It's on... March 4th, so uh, you are free from having to listen to any of this until that time. And then we will come back after that and discuss what was obviously a tremendous victory at Anfield. So, for journalist Tim Stillman, you can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Tim, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, as always. And Clive, we appreciate having you. Um, you can find Clive at, on Twitter at ClivePAFC. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Paul uh, wanted me to mention that he believes that we should, in fact, start 11 Francis Cochlins. Anyway, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, give us a five-star review if you wouldn't mind, and then write nasty things in the comments, particularly about Clive because he's new and there aren't enough nasty things that have been written about him yet, so we need to make up for that. Uh, in any event, enjoy your Arsenal-free uh, few days, and we will talk to you after Anfield. Cheers. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.